right, folks. Welcome back to hopefully one of your favorite horror podcasts on the big planet of Earth. You know what I mean? We got a, me and Mel got a big surprise for y'all today. Something very sweet like candy. Very nice. Very good times are coming. All right. This is like a happy new year. This is a happy everything. Yeah. This makes up for 2020. I, I, I would speculate to say for me, it does at least. Me too. I, I can deal with 2020 for with this, you know. So without any further ado, we'll bring in our guest for this episode, the great and wonderful Richard Stanley. Richard, how are you doing? Yeah, very good, sir. A pleasure to be here. Oh, pleasure to have you. Pleasure to have you. Yeah, it's a definite honor. For sure. For sure. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's so many things to to discuss and such, but how you doing over there? Where, where, you, where, you, where are you broadcasting from directly? Well, I'm in the um, foothills of the French Pyrenees. Um, in fact, I'm currently dead center in the middle of... Um, the Wren Pentagram, something called the the Devil's Pentagram. Um, very good spot to be writing out the apocalypse. Where, um, oh, yeah, yeah, um, thoroughly equipped and have um, good access to um, clean water. So, um, yeah, happy with all that. Yeah, I dig it. Yeah, we're, well, we're... if you're going to be stuck anywhere for an apocalypse near a good source of water, there's a good place to start. Yeah, I think, and we're in reasonable striking distance of the ocean. Land is fertile. We're practicing our archery. Um, not really enough um, game left in the land. Most of it's been hunted out, but um, I'd say we have a reasonable chance. <laughs> yeah. You're going to become very great at gardening. Yeah. It's, um, time kind of slows down. Well, that's not so bad, and it's been an excellent time for um, organizing thoughts and coming up with some... Um, ideas for um post-apocalyptic movies yeah we're gonna be seeing a whole lot of them soon that's for sure <laughs> yeah <laughs> i wonder how long it like the this whole the, the, the whole the dealing with the, the covid deal i wonder like i feel like we're gonna have a little slump in films get, receiving them as an audience you know what i mean i assume because everybody's kind of held up even with the mask situation and stuff it's still tricky to, like, you know, get a big production going and stuff. Yeah, kind of impossible at the moment. Um, yeah. Impossible to get insurance. And so um, there's um, nobody's really shooting anything unless it's um, ultra-small or um, shot in confinement. And um, at the same time, um, the um, powers that be have taken the opportunity, I think, to um, for streaming to really um, get control of the medium so that um, independent cinema will probably um, never um, fully recover from all this. Yeah. Yeah. I, I often say it's a weird, it's a weird deal because like we make films and we make like low budget films and it's hard enough. It's hard enough to kind of get, you know, crews and such to come dedicate their time as is. Um, but then you add the element of having to wear the mask for the whole, for the whole day and all the stipulations and stuff. It's just, I think it's really going to put a hurting on. Yeah. That indie low budget filmmaking circle for sure. Yeah. That'll be a, a little bit of quiet, but then, um, you know, new stuff will emerge. Oh, I yeah. mean, I do think that the world is turning a corner right now. And, yeah. Um, all kinds of stuff could happen next. 
it's definitely interesting. We're definitely living in an interesting time. Yeah. I mean, it's like, did you ever think that you would see anything like this actually happen in like real life and it not be in a movie? Um, well, I've always had a war between my, my inner rational self and my, my goofy nature where I've always tried to think, no, nah, it couldn't happen. But, um, the, um, the last couple of years, things have been getting so goofy that, um, if, um, great Cthulhu or some kind of, um, Japanese kaiju actually emerged from the water and attacked New York or something, I'd, I'd probably accept it. Yeah. Well, they're finally starting to tell us about the UFOs. Which is I never thought we'd see that day where they'd release footage and stuff. They got the actual government, you know what I mean? Yeah, I know it's some um, hell's a puppet out there, that's for sure. <laughs> 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 you think we will ever be visited? We will ever have that that big press conference with the the gray next to the president at the podium saying, Meet our new friend. <laughs> <laughs> It's not that far off. It's a, he could bring the he could bring the cure for COVID, and it could be a whole different biblical wraparound crazy experience. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, it's always been the thing with um, extraterrestrials and um, contactees and ultra dimensional beings and different channeled higher forces, is that they always criticize human beings and um, we're always puny and not worthy of them, but they never fucking do anything to help us, like actually giving us the cure for COVID or a recipe for clean nuclear energy. They always kind of stand by and say, you earthlings are not ready yet. So um, yeah. I'd, I'd it's, like to that happen. <laughs> it's like us going into like a really bad neighborhood in our towns or whatever, you know, you kind of try and avoid it with all the power that powers that be. And the aliens see Earth and they're like, yeah, no, keep going. Don't want to stop here yet. It's true. It's true. It's definitely a weird deal for sure. Um, yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll see if the aliens come forward, though, you know. Now, Richard, I know you've always been a very spiritual guy. I think you. I said you learned, your, your mother was very spiritual. That's kind of where it came from, right? Um, Probably, yeah. I mean, she um came out of... um out of Dartmoor in um, the West Country in England and um, had a natural um, thing for fairies, for um, earth elementals, and then um, got transplanted at an early age to Africa. Um, after World War II, she um, wanted to get the hell out of, of England, which was in the austerity, and went to Bulawayo um, in what was then Rhodesia because um, it had the word away in it and sounded like it was a going to be sufficiently far from from England and um, I think as a white person in Africa at that point in time it was highly unusual that she had a um, a natural proclivity towards um, a belief in um, elemental beings in um, spirits and um, yeah fairy law which caused her to see I guess a, a different aspect of um, tribal Africa than most of the other folk were noticing at the time yeah I mean, as a kid, you always pick up, if you're introduced to that, I feel in the slightest way, always gravitate to it because it's such an interesting, you know what I mean, thing. And you can really wrap your head around it. You can go in a lot of different cool directions with it. You know, I know it's always, you know, spirituality has always been like a theme um, in your films. Was it, has it always been like a point to kind of make that? Was that a conscious thing or was that just kind of you think your environment that you grew up in was so 
interwoven in you that it kind of came out like that? Or were you trying to kind of open up people's opinions and minds to these other things? Well, um, it's, it's all kind of comes down to um, weird belief systems that were inculcated into. Like, um, there are a lot of folk out there who'd say that um, encouraging a belief in supernaturalism in a child is a is a super dangerous thing, even if it's um, fairies or, um, or or Santa Claus. Um, so I, I grew. I started off life believing a lot of things, uh, and then got to school eventually and realized that um, none of those things technically existed. Yeah. Um, that you don't actually have shapeshifters or um, you know invisible beings that live in riverbeds and have magic pebbles they keep in their mouths. Uh, the the crazy things you believe up to the point you get to school, yeah. where you get sort of um, reeducated to believe in one reality yeah. and um, kind of one history, which is the um, yeah whatever the, the yeah the orthodoxy that's that's handed down. So. Um, it's funny that they're they're bothered by that stuff. They're worried about that, but this day and age, we have this thing called Grand Theft Auto that all the seven year olds play, and they run around killing people in video games. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Yeah, I'd rather I'd rather they believe in fairies and yeah, elementals good. than you know see a five year old or a six year old stuck in front of a television just playing video games and rotting their minds because there's no thought into that. At least you know making up. Scenarios with fairies is better. Well, the the element of the unknown is like great for the imagination, you know. And you need to have a great imagination to fully blossom, you know, as a kid and an adult. So, like, I always support that stuff for sure. You know, you know. I, I had a quick question about uh, filmmaking. You know, when you made your first film, a nineteen your short film in nineteen ninety three, the the rights of passage short. How difficult was it to make at that time? I and mean, was there a film community in? South Africa? Well, I mean, getting your hands on crew and equipment, was that a, what was that like? Was that difficult? Um, pretty hard. Um, there was no formal film school. And um, I went to a, I enrolled in a film class that was um, taught like one day a week by a, um, a, a, a kind of um, self-taught um, film tutor guy. And um, at the class, I, um, basically recruited the one kid who had any talent, uh, who, who um, yeah, Greg, the um, camera guy. Um, then we, um, we, we basically got together the equipment, couldn't convince anyone else to actually get involved or act in it. And um, we shot it about one shot a week, kind of um, skiving off school and um, one period and then climbing up the mountain uh, to cover myself with mud. I had to play the um, prehistoric man because I couldn't convince anyone else to um, go up the mountain and cover themselves with mud and <laughs> like um, <laughs> over and over again for um, the, the months it took to um, complete the Super 8 movie. And um, then um, we eventually cut it together and played it to the um, film tutor guy who in charge of the class, um, who was um, completely fucking appalled. Uh, really <laughs> appalled that, that, that we had done that and instantaneously confiscated the film and um, expelled both of us. Whoa, no. <laughs> Jeez. Wow. Yeah, a, a very steep reaction. I, I kept the letter he wrote to my mom explaining his actions because it's um, it kind of drew a line in the sand right from the beginning. Yeah, um, that's a badge of honor. <laughs> that's kind of yeah. funny. <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, um, rites of passage. 
Yeah. <laughs> Rites of Passage can be seen on the hardware Blu-ray for anybody out there that hasn't seen it, that wants to see it. Severin released it a couple years back. Great Blu-ray. Looks beautiful. Hardware, 30 years last year. Woo! What do you Man, think? Old. <laughs> flies, huh? Time flies when you're having fun? Yeah, it surely does. It's um, been some considerable rough road, do not it? Yeah. It's... Uh... Yeah, hardware is a great man. I love hardware. Where the um, where the concept of like the American flag over the over the the robot face come from? Uh, it kind of evolved organically, weirdly. Yeah. Uh, it, it came out of um, in the um, screenplay. I wanted to, to um, paint night and day on the droid's face. Yeah. And then we started um, doing a practice run, and the um, the night and day got more stylized, and it turned, turned into like a, a starry night sky with a crescent moon that went round onto the thing's ear. Yeah. And then the um, the day side started turning into a rising sun, and we went, oh, fuck, and realized that um, it turned into the flag. But, um, yeah, it came about pretty um, organically when we were... Um, Doing a practice run on the head. Yeah, uh, it's a great look. That I mean, I, that that should be tattooed on everybody's back. That's how great that thing looks. It's beautiful. Was it? You know, coming out of the shorts, did it get? <clears throat> did it get easier? Uh, did was it? Did you see any kind of leap in support when you went, went from the shorts to hardware? Yeah, I mean, it was a, a long, strange journey after Rites of Passage. Um, the very next thing we did was uh, we did a, a long um, science fiction short, Super 8, because we thought, okay, we're done with cavemen, we need to go into the future. Um, Tom did a, a long Super 8 movie that eventually became the basis for hardware. But um, because I'd, I was, I'd grown up in apartheid era South Africa, there was this long curlicue where I got drafted into the South African army, had to desert the army, escape the country, um, go to England, then managed to get um, music video work, shot a lot of music videos, and then eventually, um, yeah, got um, hardware off the back of yeah the videos and the um the crazy screenplay from the super 8 movie that kept getting revised and updated yeah what'd you think of the music video world i'd I'd done some music videos in my day and it's a weird thing uh people always think that the, the musicians make the music video for some reason that's the vibe i always got it was it was a difficult process yeah, but they kind of do, because at the same time, if the song's um, no damn good to begin with, or the musicians haven't got it, no, no matter how much money you throw at it, and no matter how brilliant the video is, it's still going to be shit. Uh, uh, if the guy you're filming has, genuinely has it, it doesn't matter how bad the shot it is, it's still going to be brilliant. So yeah. it's, uh, That's yeah. true, that's a good point. Yeah, that is a good point. I remember being called the cameraman a lot during those days. <laughs> it's fun though. Music videos are cool. Cause like you said, if you like the song, I mean, it's, it's really a cool film wise to put a visual twist to it. That's what I always liked about it. You know what I mean? Adding your own little story to it, which is fun. Do you have any um, music videos uh, that you've done that you like, like that you like more than any of the other ones? Well, out of the stuff that I've done, um, the ones people probably remember are the ones for Fields of the Nephilim. But um, the um, my personal favourites um, for a band called Renegade Soundwave, and there's a song called Crate Winds, is probably the um, 
the video I enjoyed most, yeah. mostly because um, that one just um, yeah had a particular history. We only we made them for very very small amounts of money. Um, I think it was seven hundred pounds at the time. Um, the band were having a dispute with the record company, so kept refusing to show up at the job, and we were desperate to get the gig done so we could pay for the camera equipment. So we we ended up just um, shooting whatever happened to be around at the time, and then um, kind of desperately scratch edited it to the to the music. And uh, I think it retains a, a sense of um, fear and sweaty desperation and some essence of that period. <laughs> 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 yeah, are they out there on YouTube? Are they on YouTube? Yeah, yeah. they might be out there somewhere. Well, speaking of music, I, I think I thought this was hysterical because I've seen your movies. So I read that you were offered to direct Spice World with the Spice Girls. Like, what was your reaction when they approached you with directing that film? Um. I, 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 it, was, it was someone I had known for a while, so I, I guess I was flattered. Um, and um, but at the same time, um, I remember um, we had a conversation where I said that they should try and make it like um, there was a John Wayne movie where I, I can't remember the name of it, where John Wayne plays a, a, an American, a tough cop who comes to London to catch a killer or something. And they have a car chase and just everywhere it's um, famous places completely out of sequence behind their, behind every shot and um, red buses. And um, I remember um, trying to convince them to um, use um, London effectively. But um, I was certainly the, um, yeah, the wrong person for the job. I, I sure would like to make a musical one day, but I'm not sure that day will ever happen. I support that musical. I would support that too. I'm just glad that it wasn't the Spice Girls. <laughs> if I if I was approaching you to do the Spice Girls movies and you turned me down, I'd say, "Tell me what you want, what you really, really want." <laughs> right? The right? Lyric? Exactly. Okay. <laughs> it's sad that we still remember that but the Spice Girl <laughs> lyric. I believe I took a shot in the dark. I think. Yeah. No, is. you're right. <laughs> I've heard enough people butcher that song at karaoke, so. I you know I enjoyed for what they for what they were I enjoyed it and my sister was a gigantic fan they were huge at the time huge you know Richard in your downtime what do you like to listen to for music if you're looking for inspiration or just want to like chill get any band yeah, um, well you know I've I've still got a hankering for um, black metal and. Um, but frankly, my this, my real sort of discovery of the month is um, I finally started listening to the soundtrack to um, an old movie called Satan's Skin or Blood on Satan's Claw. And God, have I been enjoying that soundtrack album this month, um, blasting it. <laughs> I'm glad to hear you love soundtrack. These, right behind me, those are all soundtracks. I collect, I collect soundtracks. I'm a big fan. Those sco- those scores from back in the day, yeah, you put them on and rock them like a record. It's great. For sure. Now, I, I know you were in um, the Hodorowski's Dune documentary, and I've always kind of felt that I've seen a little influence to Hodorowski's films and your films. Is he an in- somebody who influenced you? And I was curious who else you influenced you. Well, I guess um, we all have to love Hodder just for his sheer balls. 
I mean, um, the fact that he actually went out and did that and got away with it. And yeah. it, 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 it immensely talented man. So I guess um, he's certainly, um, yeah, something of a role model. But to be honest, um, I didn't encounter his work till um, fairly late in life because of my misfortune of growing up in apartheid era South Africa where there was so much censorship that I never had the chance to actually encounter a Hodorowski movie until um, I had my um, late teens when I finally got away. So he, he probably wasn't as um, as formative as all that. Yeah, I think um, his work... Oops, sorry. Well, you go for it, sir. Well, I was going to say, I think his work has that effect on a lot of like countries or whatever because it, we didn't even get... It was very like obscure to get here for a while, too. I remember I stumbled into it later in the game. There was a box set released with like El Topo, um, the Holy Mountain, um, and his first film. I forget what it was. The one that caused riots. The theater, like they rioted in the theater. Um, and I seen them and I was like blown away. Then I seen Santa Sangri and I was like floored. I love that movie. It's beautiful. I actually got the word. There was an actor, uh, Sabrina Dennison, who plays Alma in the film. was in like my, the last short film we did. And she's a sweetheart. Um, yeah, Alejandro, yeah, to those films, those films are they're, they're they're like ultimate art house films. You know what I mean? Like, there anybody who's never seen them, definitely go check them out if you're listening now for sure. What else do you like for films, Richard? If you're going to sit down and watch a film, yeah. Um, well, heck. Um... The first movie I ever saw, and probably still the biggest influence on me, was the original um, King Kong, mm. which I saw what my dad brought home and played on 60mm when I was about four. So it would have been the... There was no television in um, Southern Africa when I was growing up. That came along later. So um, in terms of moving images, the first one I probably encountered was yeah, Kong on 16mm. And um, Kong continues to cast a, a long shadow. And in this day and age of everyone constantly um, going on about um, Citizen Kane and um, whether it's the greatest movie ever made, I still think Kong is the greatest movie ever made. <laughs> I agree with that. I agree. That stop motion is like, you can't really beat it, you know. You got the the argument of all the practical effects and digital effects and all that, but you got the the stop motion like that. That the movement of the stop motion is something. There's something not alive but alive about it that's really cool. That like it's it's like you know you can kind of tell that it might not be completely real, but it's real because it's there type feel. So like you still feel it. You get it's like the, getting caught up in like the magic of the film, so to speak. You know what I mean? Yeah, and for for, for all the remakes and spinoffs, I went back and watched the original Kong again about a week ago, very recently, and uh, still in the final reel, I found myself. Um, crying and um, really uh, I, I kind of break down from the moment that the radio says Kong's heading towards the Empire State Building uh, it still has a, a, a stronger emotional impact on me I think than say images of the crucifixion or um, yeah. a lot of other um, uh, religious tableaus so I'm, I'm a, a big Kong fan and um, was super influenced by the um, the notion of the um, crazy Carl Denham character going off to um, bring back um, the biggest thing that ever happened or um, something that um, no one had ever seen before and found um, Marion C. Cooper, the director, to be um, super inspirational. I mean, the the guy was a 
a barnstorming um, biplane pilot who um, was decorated in World War One, um, who then um, started making documentaries and came up through documentaries and then somehow directed Kong, a film which is um, completely artificial and even flies the biplane in the taxis of the, their own um, miniature ape. So, um, yeah, I was smitten with admiration for Kong from an early age and like a lot of creepy kids spent a lot of time goofing around with Super 8 cameras and um, claymation models and trying to, um, yeah, create miniature worlds. So everybody out there, st- start the start gathering names for Richard Stanley's King Kong. Woo! Yeah, well, we want to go there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I love Kong. It's the, he probably, he's got to be one of the most sympathetic characters I've ever put on film. And I'm with you right there. I feel that emotion every time. Even in Peter Jackson's King Kong, I felt emotion at the end of that, and you know exactly what's coming. And like it's it's old feelings from the older film, and like you know, Peter Jackson's a great filmmaker as well. So it's like it just works. You know what I mean? Mm, but he softens Kong in ways that um, I, I I can't go with. So you know, yeah. we all know that Kong actually destroys the Fifth Avenue elevated railway line and kills hundreds of innocent people. He doesn't go ice skating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah there was that wasn't gonna fly they weren't gonna let that one go down but it's uh yeah kong classic classic that stop stop motion yeah beautiful i wish there was more of it i wish there was more to be seen you see a lot of it more with the animated stuff now like like that the tim like you know tim bernie like nightmare before christmasy stuff and you know when they're going for that vibe you see it a lot you know um you see here you know then you got so we got hardware turns 30 years old um and uh you know severed anybody out there go with that on set the severed film now let's talk about dust devil for a moment if we could um great film um i love it now it had some issues with the cutting right the producers got involved when they shouldn't have um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a goddamn devil movie. At the time, I thought it was the worst possible experience any human being could have. But we, um, we, we um, I mean, in the course of the shoot, I, I, something like 42 hire cars were written off, like destroyed beyond, um, recognition just, just, just in the course of shooting that thing. Um, the parent company went bankrupt, and, um, yeah, um, Miramax obtained a cutting copy of the film because, um, Miramax under Harvey Weinstein had, um, money in the film. Uh, to um, basically um, recoup their costs, um, cut a version of Dust Devil out of the cutting copy, which, um, uh, um, thanks to um, Miramax, um, ended up in distribution in the U.S., so that the um, version of Dust Devil um, streamed in most places is unfortunately the Harvey Weinstein cut, which um, differs very substantially um, from the, um, the full cut. Yeah. Um in 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 creepy incriminating ways as well. Um like um, one of the major differences is that um most of the people of color are cut from the Miramax edition and hmm. um, including a lot of material from Zakes Mackay and John Machikiza. So um yeah, I'm always pushing for folk to go the extra mile and try and um find the um the full length version which is um 
distributed in um, the UK and um, Europe and most of the rest of the world. So it is out there. It is out it, there, Roman. It's out there, Roman. Yeah, there was a there was a US release of it too, and from Subversive Cinema a bunch of years ago. But that's mostly been deleted or has become um, quite rare at the moment. I know um, it's on Amazon. Amazon, you could buy it on Amazon. I don't know if it's the appropriate cut, but I know you can buy it on Amazon. Yeah, it's a tricky thing. Yeah, the Dust yeah. Devil being a goddamn devil movie has a, a rogue um, Harvey Weinstein evil Miramax cut that we've been fighting, and fighting um, for decades now. Uh, it's Harvey. Like about- <laughs> Harvey, Harvey, Harvey Weinstein is- finding something wrong with a film after with he what he's been through. Jeez, Harvey's a dust devil. I think he's a he's a he's jumping around. He's switching bodies. He's a skinwalker. <laughs> <laughs> the um. Yeah, I mean, before Harvey was notorious for what he's notorious for now, he was notorious for being a hack of going in there and, like, destroying people's films, you know what I mean? Yeah, he hated Dust Devil, that's for sure. So he was super down on that one. Because they they had their hand in hardware at some point, right? Maybe in distribution? Yeah, they definitely had their hand in hardware. And um, in fact, were um, quite bullish about it, and um, even um, shot um, additional scenes for hardware, which um, were so inappropriate that they failed to cut into the movie in any way at all, and were eventually abandoned. Yeah, but, um, yeah, somewhere out there are some um, Harvey Weinstein shot um, additional scenes for hardware, which were not included in the in the movie. So um, yeah, they were right there, and it, hardware made a pretty penny for him. Um, I did good business for him. So, um, yeah, they got involved with Dust Devil, which um, turned out to be uh, a, a nightmare devil movie from hell. <laughs> not the way it was in- intended to be, though, and not the way it was intended. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's always been bad luck, that one. Yeah. And um, we always got to go the extra mile to actually try and find a working copy or uh, one that um, consistently cuts together. <laughs> yeah, it's a gr- it's a great movie if you can get out there. You know, I I don't know if you want to promote the cut, the the, the, the unofficial cut, um, but I, hopefully we can get like Shout Factory or somebody could do a nice official US cut. That'd be cool. Um, but yeah, great film. The imagery in it is like insane. So, you know. That, that that scene where, you know, I don't know if I want to spoil, I mean, some people have seen it, you know what I mean? Uh, but like, they're, they're like the first kill, we'll say. Um, there's a first kill in the film and after what he does with like the remains of her. It's like in phenomenal, phenomenal work. I love it. <laughs> and uh, it's just great imagery, you know what I mean? It's right up there. I'd, I'd have to equate it to, like, Clive Barker in a way because, like, you guys, the imagery in you guys' movies is, like, like it, it nails home creepiness. Like, the factor that you're going for is, like, hit. Where you'll see other films where, like, oh, they're trying to go, like, a little edgy. You're trying a little dark, dark, but they don't quite make it. But, like, the imagery in Dust Devil, you know, uh, the, the, the things you know written on the walls and there's a part where it's burning there's a part where i remember there i remember distinctively a part where the, there's a fire going and like the way that this bloody face reflects through like a mirror type deal with the fire behind it it just looks like the devil's in the room it's crazy yeah. I'm so pleased. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a real goddamn devil movie it's a, it was a, a thousand miles of um rough road I mean, um, 
it came out of the desire to try to create the simplest movie we could possibly make as teenagers. Yeah. And I thought, could we make a movie which was like um, a girl in a car picks up a guy who's hitchhiking and he turns out to be the devil? Yeah. It kind of ran, ran from there. We tried shooting it on 16 millimeter. And um, it was the last thing I tried to shoot before escaping South Africa. Um, <laughs> the um, 16 millimeter version um, ran hellishly awry already. Um, then um, we came back with um, money from um, Weinstein's and um, shot the thing again in the, the Namib Desert. The, the whole thing's in the, um, the Great Namib, which is um, yeah, one of the, um, I guess, most anti-human places in the world. And it's like a, an eight million year old desert. A lot of other deserts were forests once, but the, the Namib's just been a, a desert forever. Um, no, I'm truly cussed by the by the gods. Yeah. Do you think, like, when making a movie like a Dust Alpha movie where you're dealing with very dark subjects, do you think that that opens the film up to, like, you know, maybe, you know, a clearer route to, like, you know, a weird problem that comes up type deal? Um, well, we did suffer from a lot of um, creepy, tricksy um, devil movie um, coincidences. Mm. which um, is just one of those things that happened, I guess, when you're um, tuning into those um, kind of um, crazy frequencies. Like um, the editing crew um, got freaked out because the edge numbering stuck and pr- uh, numbered like the first week's rushes 666 over and over again. And the, the, um, <clears throat> the second unit crew had some kind of UFO encounter and, uh, while out in the desert filming time-lapse um, <laughs> sky and star and sunset footage. They're just, just different. Um, They're ready to get priests to come on set to perform yeah. an exorcism type of deal. No, better than that, um, we, we, um, we had some of the Namibian government come down on set oh. and um, accepted a bribe check to them, which was given to them by Robert Burke, the star of Dust Devil, dressed in his Dust Devil devil outfit. (laughs) Officially handed them the Weinstein check. Uh, They officially accepted it. It was a a, a formal ceremony. You should have took his picture after. Oh, that's hysterical, right? (laughs) You should have snapped the picture. I had a quick question about the the picture in Dust Devil. Is that in, in any way like a tribute to Texas Chainsaw Massacre with the picture before the like before taking them, so to speak, or is that just kind of played off of? I know some pe- cultures believe if you get your picture taken, that it can like capture your soul. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, that's the one. Okay. Yeah, and definitely um, capturing your soul with, um, with the Polaroids. Yeah. Yeah, I dig it. I like it. I love the whole spiritual element to it because I, I love getting into that stuff. I got another show b- about spiritual stuff and uh, so interesting. It's so interesting. I wanted to dip in a little bit the uh, the doc, the Lost Soul doc a little bit. You know, as a filmmaker myself, you fi- it's like you finally it's like you break into the big the big party. You know what I mean? You get the you get you got the you got the film and then it all came away from you and it was right out of your hands. That's like the nature of the beast with dealing with the big studios. You know what I mean? But I can only imagine what that was like. You know what I mean? I, I don't even, it was just insanity. I'm sure. You know what I mean? Um, you know, do you, do you credit your spirituality with helping you get through that situation? Cause I mean, that can be a lot on somebody's mind. You know what I mean? 
Um, yeah, or you could say I, I credit that situation for my spirituality. Uh, but um, it, it, it was pretty good. It all got pretty meter. Yeah. I mean, I was effectively the guy who who read the book uh, and then thought, okay, I, 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 I had a sort of moment of ego and thought maybe I should be the writer and adapt the book, um, become the author of the thing. But then um, it turned on me and um, I ended up becoming a character in the thing instead. Yeah. Uh, somehow I ended up becoming a, a beast person on the island of Dr. Moreau. Which um, I didn't see coming at uh, at the off, but it's continued to um, to be b- pretty bizarre because um, David Gregory's Lost Soul documentary presents the story in such a way that um, now um, there is renewed interest in um, returning to the island and um, rebooting the thing. Uh, moreover, it turns out that um, the original compound and um Moreau's domain and for the um nineteen ninety five version was so well built by the production designer Graham Grace Walker from the Mad Max movies that the damn thing is still there, um, overgrown in the middle of the rainforest at Cape Tribulation. But um the thing remains and there is almost a, a, a cargo cult culture waiting for the day that Moreau returns. Um, the um, the island is um, officially rebooted. So um, it, to some extent, um, the full um, destiny of the Moreau thing it might not have um, played itself out yet. I'd love to see it. I'd love to see it, yeah. It's one of those notorious projects. You know, I think a lot of people would love to see it. I know that you got to sit down with Marlon Brando and the whole reason why he was interested in doing the film was because of you, you know what I mean? And, and wanting to work with you with that. Um, it's funny. Cause like that role turned into something that was notoriously like comedic and they, they spoofed in Austin powers with the mini me character and all that. And it's almost like Marlon Brando, when you left the project, he gave up on the project. Like he no longer cared about this project. And that's why I think he went so bizarre with his choices, which made it like iconic in a different way. You know what I mean? Um, do you have any cool stories about dealing with Brando? I mean, brand iconic, iconic, you know what I mean? Yeah. No, I mean, I, I guess I got to direct him a little because yeah. um, initially he wanted to, um, have the character become uh, um, always in darkness and to be wearing black and to, just to cover up his his size and um, uh, and knowing that he'd done gone there before on, uh, on Apocalypse Now, I, I pushed hard to have him wear white instead and to go for the um, the Moby Dick look that um, he ended up with. And, um, so I guess uh, so. Uh, the white zinc cream on his face was also a thing. My my dad died from. Um, skin cancer, um, solar keratosis, and Moreau's aware that he's in the world with very little ozone layer and, it's, um, uh, and um, the white zinc cream, I think, and the, the wardrobe choices are, <laughs> um, remain from some of the um, the early conversations. Yeah. Yeah, I, lo- I, I, yeah, I love that character. Like, where it goes is crazy. You know what I mean? Um, it's fun, though. And you were on set. You stayed on set you know, intertwining back into the mix and such and got to see, you know, firsthand and secondhand, you know, the, the operation, which was, uh, 
which was cool. The brand, you know, the anybody who's never seen the doc, go check out the doc. It's a lot of fun. You know, there's the, the clashing between Val Kilmer and Brando is like great. Like, great. You know, forget about Tiger King. This should have been the biggest deal ever. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, it's a lot. You know, <laughs> it did involve the shortest man on earth, and that's the thing. It did, and that is the key. The, the key purpose of that film we're bringing him to the light. That's what we want. Yeah, to Nelson De La Rosa. Yeah, and he had a career. He had a career before that, right? Yeah, like, he was, um, yeah, Ratman. Yeah, I remember he was trying to get the ladies on set. He was a ladies' man. I heard. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, was... <laughs> he's uh, he's big swinging dick where he comes from. So all's well. Uh, the yeah the the Brando yeah the Brando thing is crazy the whole deal is fun but you know with that documentary came introduced you to kind of Elijah Wood and Spectre Vision in like a new way you know what I mean which would later uh, create a partnership that would bring on Colorado Space that's right yeah I mean in its full um, context I, I don't think any of this would have happened had I not gone back onto Dr. Moreau and become a dog. Uh, I think that was an act so strange that um, somehow um, it brought the narrative around into this position where um, Color Out of Space um, got made. Now, the in the documentary, I believe you said you like you were getting ready to board, you were, you were going to leave to board the plane and you just decided not to type deal? That's what happened? Um, actually, uh, yeah, that's going back to last So That's actually not what happened. Okay. Uh, and um, one of the funny things in the documentary is that the documentary is a pretty accurate account of what went down, but um, pretty much everyone's lying a little. Um, uh, <laughs> it, it's actually quite not quite what went down. Uh, so... Uh, <laughs> yeah, because I, I I could have sworn that like they had somebody like escort you to the airport, but he didn't that, stay to make sure you got on the plane. So you use that as you know no, your, that, your that, way that, to go back to get on set. That actually happened. Um, the the way I recall this was I was in the garden um, shredding documents, and the um, bison man was one of the only beast people still loyal. And he, uh, 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 David, and he took off his shirt and gave it to me. Then the two guys arrived and to take me to the airport and uh, was taken to the airport in um, Cairns, Queensland. And I got on the airplane and I flew to um, Sydney. And in Sydney, I got a lawyer um, and um, tried to um, basically um, sue the company. And... Um, in my absence, while um, things went bad on the island, um, a rumor spread that I had not got on the aeroplane and that I was still somewhere on the island or somewhere, <laughs> somewhere in the rainforest, which got reported all the way back to the um, <clears throat> like boiler, the um, water cooler chit-chat in the offices in Los Angeles. And suddenly I was assumed to be like leading a tribe of Dayak headhunters or something out in the rainforest and the whole production went on to high security alert. And um, they got really freaked out thinking that the tribal people would turn on them. 
and um yeah that's kind of the vibe i was getting that they it was like they felt you were going to come back and like murder everybody and their families yeah (laughs) what was going on they they had a an extreme paranoia attack which i was um, completely unaware of because i was in um suddenly um looking over my my legal options and um then um i um i flew back to Cairns about a week later and discovered that I landed that everyone thought I was like leading some kind of um, tribal insurrection against the production company. (laughs) 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 It was all pretty good. I mean, um, it was a a devastating set of things to happen, but um, in the long term, I guess it worked out the way it was supposed to. It had to make great publicity for the film. You know, if if the news or, you know, media had any idea of what was going on on set, you know, that had to help push the numbers and get people into the theaters. Oh, my God, there was there was drama on set. Let's go see this movie. Yeah, uh, sadly, they're deprived the world of a um, of a decent movie. But um, who knows? um, how far it would have gone if um, if they hadn't actually removed me at that point. But that's just um, yeah, a matter for speculation because there was an awful lot of stuff which was um, yeah, brand new at the time and um, very difficult for people to wrap their heads around. Like um, motion capture was just um, starting to become a thing at that point and um, the concept that you could have a... Um, some kind of um, talking humanized animal um, play a sympathetic part, I think, was um, too much for um, the the, the company to to get behind at that time. Uh, Whereas um, in a um, post-Guardians of the Galaxy um, ecology, we know that a a talking raccoon can um, win the hearts and minds of America. So I I think in some respects where we were going was slightly too much of a reach for... For, for the mid nineties, uh, and um, it's, it's a shame it went the way it did because um, heck, I would have, I would have made a lot more movies otherwise. Yeah. Well, well with the time we're in the time of reboots, so you know you never know. <laughs> you look you at always Kubrick. go in and do it your way, exactly. It's quality over quantity. Look at Cooper. Look at Cooper. <laughs> yeah. But the company did have to pay me off to keep my silence, and. I ended up walking out of the um, rainforest with a bit of money and um, no career. So I guess I got the chance to then um, follow a spiritual path, to put it euphemistically. Yeah. But you're back, back in a big way, baby. You know, what was color? Did color have a big uh, development process? Because it almost felt like it came as from an audience standpoint, it felt like it came about pretty quickly. Was did it come about quickly for you guys or is that something you were trying to get going for years? I mean, it'd been in the wind a while. Um, Loved Lovecraft since I was a kid. Yeah. um, Yeah, it really started to come about through. the Theatre Bazaar, which is an anthology film, which... Um, that's, a, that's a great okay. film. Yeah, that, that was really the um, gestation of it. And um, Theatre Bazaar, I thought, let's do a homage to Lovecraft and Clark Ashton Smith with the um, the Mother of Toads. And in the Mother of Toads segment, we put together a, um, a Necronomicon. And I guess... Um, 
created a bit of a template for it. Then the, um, the backers of Theatre Bazaar um, dug what we did for um, you know, the 20 minute segment and said, um, well, why don't you um, write a feature length um, Lovecraft adaptation set in, um, you know, in a woodland rustic setting on a, on a, on a single farm or uh, away from the world. So um, Color Out of Space was born. And um, then um, it, the script floated around um, a few years. And to be honest, I'd um, almost um, lost um, optimism that um, the beast would ever come about. But um, thanks to um, the Spectivision, who um, managed to um, get a copy of um, The Color Out of Space into, um, into yeah, Nick Cage's hands, the, um, the film then um, fell together remarkably quickly. Um, I got a, um, a phone call from Mr. Cage that came through to me at about 4am in, um, in Montsegur in the, um, the remote, um, village I was living in, in Cathar country at the time. And from that point, things rolled, um, very fast. Um, Nick had a very short window of availability, which was, um, basically four weeks from the beginning, from the last week of January, um, 2019, and, um, which gave us something like six weeks of prep to um, put the thing together and also meant prepping over um, Christmas and New Year, which was a, a tricky time and also having to shoot in the, the middle of winter, which is tricky for a scenario set in um, late summer or autumn or um, harvest time. So um, it was a one of those funny things where, like a storm, it takes forever to actually come about, and then suddenly, pang! Um, once it started moving, it uh, it went fast. Yeah, yeah. Nicholas Cage, iconic. Uh, Nicholas Cage, like a god in film right now. You know what I mean? What's it like to work with Nicholas Cage as a director and an actor relationship? Is he a coll- collaborative actor? Or is he like to kind of take the notes and go do his own deal type thing? Um, no, it was a pure joy. Uh, I have to say, um, after um, so many years away, it was just um, great working with someone of, um, of Nick's caliber. Yeah. Um, he's really got it down. And but you know, he went through the script and pinpointed various areas where he could um, really bring something to it with um, the improvisation. But um, Nine times out of ten, he really hit it out of the park on the first take, and um, usually we um, adjusted a bit to what he was doing, and then we, usually we got it on the second or the third take um, really quick, and um, just the, his sheer energy, um, I think, um, raised the stakes to the point where everyone raised their game, and yeah. um, I found um, we were shooting um, much quicker than um, I'd expected. We ended up pretty much a day ahead of schedule. Yeah. With, with, I've always wondered with Nick Cage, it's like, and we love him. Everybody loves him. Love him to death. Like, there's a thing where people, the fans say going full cage. I don't know if you ever heard that term, going full cage, where like he, he, he go a, li- a little, I wouldn't say over the top, but he, go, he goes a little full cagey. And I was always wondering on set, you know, there are certain situations like in this, there's the part where he's talking to the kids and he's like, do me like, do, uh, I think it's like something about like, do me a favor and get the fuck out my face, something like that. Um, and he, but, but he's like, gets real animated with it. Like when oh, Nicholas, yeah, yeah. That part with, with his, with the outside door. by the farm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah by the, uh, and uh, I was always wondering on set, 
when he delivers a, 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 a take that's, you know, full cage, if you will, is there an applause after that take after cut? Or is it just kind of like uh, everybody's relaxed, just knows what just happened, but they're keeping it to themselves type deal? Well, I really hope that you guys get to see the deleted scenes at some point. Um, yeah. there's some, I know there's some deleted scenes out there on some of the discs or um, floating around YouTube. But um, there was a particularly good one where um, in the bedroom scene with, um, with, with Jody and the kid, um, he's explaining that he's all right, that he's fine, that he's never felt better. Um, she asks him if he's all right, and um, then he takes us across into doing a standing on his head to um, show that he's um, never felt better. And I recall when Nick did the headstand in that take, um, the first AD looked at me and I kind of like, <laughs> and um, it's like, no, it's okay, let it run. Uh, it's going on doing a headstand and playing the scene upside down. And I can hear kind of a vibration in the set, which is somebody moving in the, um, the, in the um, video city where all the producers and folk are sitting watching the, the tape. Somebody gets up and a door slams and you can feel a sense of alarm and panic running through the set. What's happening? Why is Nick on his head? Um, can someone get him back the right way up? Or is it, you've got to keep rolling <laughs> <laughs> you get a cool cut and uh, this, uh, this slight sort of shockwave goes out through the beast. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah it's, uh, <laughs> It's a thing. Um, so I, I think in color, it's um, we 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 modulated then his performance in a way that I hopefully um, amps up in a um, a, suit, a suitably trippy manner. Yeah, oh for sure, it's phenomenal. Phenomenal. The whole movie's great. Love it. Yeah, it's one of my it's one of my favorite movies from the last couple of years. Like it's just so beautifully done. The colors, everything. Like, and like I I actually have a question too. Like I know you hear a lot of things about working with like younger actors on set. How was it having all you know the kids and the the littlest the littlest boy on set? Is it was it hard to direct them and get them to be on cue and where you needed them to be when you needed them to be there? Well, that was an absolute treat because um, that was like really a way also of um, completely getting back into my own childhood because certainly in color, I think um, uh, Jack, um, the, um, the the youngest son, is um, yeah, very much who I was as a kid, um, kind of um, sloping away and dealing with the world falling apart and nothing making sense by doing um, crayon drawings of um, different Lovecraftian monsters and... Um, developing um, complicated um, relationships with invisible playmates. So, um, yeah, I was having a ball. And, um, it was, um, yeah, absolute um, yeah, treat to work with the, um, the cast members we got. I think we got um, super, super lucky on um, colour. Maybe the, um, the old ones or whatever it was um, yeah. were just um, somehow intended it to be that way. Hell yeah. Yeah, do you have any favorite old ones? I know that they're very. I the descriptions of them are very. I love the oozing and all that, the tentacles and stuff like that. It's such a creepy visual when you when you when you really read through. You like the descriptions of what they look like. You got any favorite personal favorites? You know, it's the big Cthulhu, um, but you know, there's some other in the mix. Yeah, I think it would very much depend on the mood, and I'd I'd hate to um. To to slight any of them, um, 
But yeah, right, I'm currently working on a new adaptation of Dunmachara, so i um, been spending a lot of time with Yogg-Sothoth. Yeah. Yeah, I can't wait to see that, too. I'm excited for that. The thing that Mel, Mad Mel just brought up, the color uh, scheme, and I was very curious, with the pink and the purples, is that something that's like regularly in an H.P. Lovecraft story that he gets into the color? I know that like From Beyond has, you know, kind of a, a pink and purplish color scheme too. Um, where does that color scheme come from? Yeah, I and mean, that's something which is coming from um, the human um, spectrum. And okay. that um, there's a point where um, things go out of um, our range, out of our auditory spectrum or out of our visual spectrum. And the human visual range exists between um, ultraviolet and infrared. Yeah. So um, I guess it's going to the outer limit of um, what we can actually see. If you can't actually see what the real co- what the what the real color is, but it um, appears to be ultraviolet or um, infrared from yeah. uh, to our eyes. So I guess we, it's the same as going into um, ultrasound or infrasound. The um, points where um, sound um, ducks out of our um, arsenic range, and so. Um, I think we arrive at those points simply because they're yeah the the, the outer limits of um of of, of what anyone can um, can show. Yeah, and uh, since mentioning from beyond, bringing up you know the great Stuart Gordon, rest in peace, another filmmaker that sits in the house of H.P. Lovecraft. Um, you were uh, you did a cameo in Dagon for him, right? Do you yeah. Any, you got any good stories about working with Stuart or just knowing him? Um. Well, I don't, yeah, I didn't know him very long, but um, we had a chance to take a few meals together on the um, on the Dagon set, which I think was a treat to him at the time because he just enjoyed talking to someone who was um, who spoke English and was familiar with the um, the Lovecraft stories. Yeah. Um, being a, um, a Lovecraft fan himself and collector of the different um, Arkham House originals. Uh, um, I remember the Dagon set being super chaotic, but it was yeah. um, shot in um, Spain and um, actually in Catalonia. And um, yeah, um, not a lot of people were understanding what was go- what was going on. But it was kind of a kind of a fun place to be. Yeah, and it gave me a chance at least to turn out as a, one of the uh, the fish people and chant um, Thulu Rulia Fatahan. <laughs> um, I'm doing my bit for the um, the Cthulhu cult. Hell yeah, yeah, we, yeah. Stuart Gordon, a sad passing. You also got to work with uh, Terry Gilliam. You had a cameo in um, Twelve Monkeys. How was yeah, that? How was that? An accident. Uh, um, it, I, I was um, sent on a mission to Philadelphia to um, recruit Bruce Willis into Island of Doctor Moreau. Uh, and um, gave Bruce the existing um, lookbook and script, and he was in um, Twelve Monkeys at the time, and they were shooting the um, the airport scenes, which were actually at a old Union Hall in um, in Philadelphia that had been converted into a um, an airport set. And I had to sit around for about a week while Bruce made up his mind. So during that time, I got inducted in as an extra. So that was just purely um, purely by accident, but. Um, but what's your benefit? Yeah, it was one of those odd trippy things. I've always had a funny re- a, a relationship with um, La Jete, that um, Chris Marker movie. Um, and have you ever seen that? 
I haven't seen, I haven't that, seen one, that one, no. Okay, it's a um, it's a black and white um, French film told entirely in still images. That's the basis for Twelve Monkeys. Okay. And although it's a short in black and white and, and told entirely in still images, it, it somehow still manages to be m- way more heartrending than um, Twelve Monkeys. It's a, it's a super good short. Maybe one of the best shorts I've ever seen. Yeah, uh, that whole business of being trapped in the transit lounge on the day that um, World War Three breaks out is something that's kind of been ricocheting around my life for a bunch of years. It made sense being an extra. Yeah, yeah, that was a cool. That that's a fun film too. It's a big production. That was a gigantic production. Shizzle. Um. So yeah, we had the Dunwich Horrors coming up. We were talking a little bit before about. Uh, you know, Mad Mel more so likely, Rhode Islander, you know. Yeah, home, home of HP Lovecraft. I've been yeah. doing a little more research, and I'm like, I was brought up with it. My dad was a big fan of HP Lovecraft. So I've been like very fond of like Cthulhu and, you know, the characters since I've been to his home a couple of times. You know, that was one of the places they used to love to take us as kids on field trips. Um, yeah. <laughs> when he went in, insane for a short period of time and was in Butler Hospital, there's something else I've got in common with him. Well, he was in he was in the hospital too. The Butler. Yeah. Hospital. Yep. They actually, I guess, I I guess one of the wings is actually named after him, and that's something oh, that's I didn't cool. know. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of cool. I can support that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the little you know the. the you know, living in the smallest state, one of the smallest states in the United States, it's, it's got a, it's got its uh, benefits because a lot of great things have actually come out of Rhode Island, of Rhode Island, be it you know, authors or you know, directors or even just the scenery alone with the you know going down like the beach areas. But it's there's the always something thing. where they, yeah, the, the Rhode Island thing. Rhode Island, New England, New, the whole New England in itself is is engulfed in all that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm fond of Rhode Island. I admit. Next time you're down here, we'll take you out on the town. Yeah, I know. Last time I was, yeah, I loved Providence and <clears throat> went on down to Newport to check out the um, the Newport Stone Tower, uh, some pre-Columbian um, stone tower thing. Yeah. Um, Tom, was, yeah. it, was it by chance with Nicolas Cage? Because I know for uh, there was um, for a period of time where he actually had property down in Newport. He owned, he was renting out one of the the mansions or something there. No, yeah, it actually wasn't with Nick. Um, but I guess it was already part of the same um, elaborate web of events. <laughs> you know, I went to the Newport Templar Tower and um, randomly met a, um, a, a a very zealous, um, yeah, obstetrician gentleman um, who um, introduced himself as Doctor 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 Love. He was a doctor three times over, and, um, he, and he told me all about um, Rhode Island's proud history and how happy he was to be an obstetrician and to be delivering the new life of the Republic. It was, a, it was a goofy moment, but Nick wasn't there. <laughs> doctor, 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 love. I love yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, I love Newport, love, um, love Rhode Island. Rhode Island's yeah, good, yeah. impression. <clears throat> yeah, John Waters is in Rhode Island a lot, I believe. Yeah, there's, a, there's a lot. Yeah, James Woods. There's James a lot Woods of actors. 
there's a lot of actors and musicians that have like summer homes here just because of the fact that it is so beautiful down in like the Newport areas and, you know, the areas that are closer to the ocean views. Richard, when you were like, when you were doing that break off into like going into the Moreau deal, um, you were kind of, you've always kind of felt like you've been an independent filmmaker where you kind of, you, you get your budget, you go outside the system, make your film, and then you kind of deliver it back in for the distribution part, right? Kind of like that? Or they, did, is the studio more, I mean, in circum circumstances, of course, you know, like Dust Devil and such, that we've seen their hand heavy in the production. But at what point did the, the like studios and the financial aid, so to speak, start to come into the mix of your filmmaking? Um, it's always been a thing, I'd say. I mean, I noticed that when we shot the first Super 8 movie, it came back to the Super 8 class we got the cameras from, and they yeah. responded by confiscating the film. And, that's true, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was daffodils. So um, I think that's been a, it was an issue right right for the top. But, um, you know, working more towards um, trying to create some kind of synergy with my production partners. Yeah. So that, um, yeah, a, a Moreau-type affair never occurs again. But, yeah. Um, yeah, there's always folk looking over your shoulder, um, never more so than now in a digital world. Um, but, you know, once whatever you see through your frame, um, someone else is seeing it um, at the same time, and um, usually 12 other people are seeing it. So, um, yeah, it's... Um, uh, you're never in a situation where um, there ain't someone looking over your shoulder. It's true. It's very true. Very true. Mad Mel, how you doing over there? I'm doing. I'm just like taking this all in because I'm like kind of fangirl mode right now. <laughs> all three of us are fan. We're fanning out. Yeah. We're super excited. Oh, man. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh. I, I would love to see a nice King Kong Richard Stanley film one day. That'd yeah, be- I wouldn't uh, go there, though, because uh, the, the originals kind of assumed a, um, a sacred text status for me. Mm, it should so. be rebooted. Not a fan. What do you, how do you feel about reboots and all that? Is there a place for them in the world or no? Uh, I'm more in favor of rebooting things that didn't work in the past and, and try to fix them. Yeah, no, I'm with mm-hmm. you on that. Yeah, I, I think trying to uh, um, trying to reboot things that were classics to begin with is um, is foolhardy. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of um, great material out there that um, you know could be um, suddenly improved. That's true. I, I agree. The more obscure stuff we we're talking about, you know, they're doing a People Under the Stairs reboot. We we're talking about that recently. It's like. It's good because a lot of people don't know about. It. I mean, you know, horror fans know about it, but your typical. Joe Blow, you, you got like an eighteen-year-old kid just getting out of high school. They probably don't know about no people under the stairs. You know. I mean, some of them think that the remake of Nightmare on Elm Street in two thousand ten is like who Freddy Krueger is because they've never really been exposed to the Robert England versions of it. So it's like they're getting brought up in the wrong. They're getting brought up the wrong way. They're not understanding the classics. Well, now when they talk about the people under the stairs, they're talking about Harvey Weinstein. You gotta be careful. Gotta be careful. 2020, 2021. Big time trouble. But, hell yeah. Delightful. This was a great time. 
Hell yeah. What's your drink of choice over there right now, Mr. Stanley? Uh, I'm drinking um, a brand called Kong. Oh, he's Kong all the way That's through, right? baby. Seriously? In, uh, yeah, seriously. It's, uh, I'm drinking... Uh, uh, Is it an energy drink? Uh, energy, yeah. Uh, an energy drink called Kong. Uh, it's, on, it's on message. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there... I, I, I've often seen some hallucinogenic imagery in some Richard Stanley films. I've all, often wondered, does Richard ever dabble a little bit, maybe back in the day or not, in some like hallucinogenic, you ever do any hallucinogenic stuff? I know in the spiritual realm, the spiritual culture, you know, there's a lot of that going on, opening up your, your third eye and stuff like that. And even over here in America, they're starting to, give hallucinogenic stuff for like depression and medical reasons. Now, uh, what's your take on all that stuff? Hallucinations. I'll try anything once. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, life is, um, you know, short and all. So, um, I've, I've tried to, um, you know, give pretty much most things a whirl mm. just to, um, see what it was about. And, um, yeah, certainly there's, um, a lot of good to be had from, um, yeah, from some psychedelics. Yeah. Mm, some, uh, I, I guess, masculine things probably would be um, pretty great antidepressants and make for, um, yeah, a, a strong alternative to um, some of the things that have been out there. And um, and generally, um, I think most folks should probably um, try a major psychedelic at least once under um, <laughs> the right circumstances just to... Um, Give it a shot. I think one's um, a lot more attuned to um, natural energies. And I would always strongly advise doing these things around me. And, um, yeah, um, around, um, I'd say, nature, um, places which are as, um, as, as tranquil and as unspoiled as possible. Because, Sounds um, like Labor Day weekend. Uh, my cousin had come across mushrooms and where she lives, she lives out in Foster, which was she, on like four and a half acres of land. And the vast majority of it is all like wooded area. So she's got like a nice little patio area built out in the woods and everybody but me, because I was scared to try them. It's like taking shrooms and like everything, they were like, you know, everything just becomes a lot more vivid. You can, you know, like the, the stars were clearer. They looked closer, everybody was saying. And, you know, you could like, actually, they were more in tune with the breeze blowing and the tree branches and whatnot. And I'm just sitting there going, wow, I wish I wasn't such a chicken shit. <laughs> well, there's a stigma about it. You know, there's too many weird stories of people jumping off of rooftops and stuff after taking something, you know, which I think is kind of old wives tale stuff. Just fear, make people afraid of doing stuff. But, um, yeah. No. Uh, it's a it's a thing. I mean, I could tell you that um, I actually do know one person whose um, son jumped out of a window while um, while tripping on LSD. Oh. Um, but at the same time, um, I, I would I definitely would have been killed under some circumstances had I not been tripping on LSD. There have been um, times in my life when um, I know my drug saved my life. Hmm. Which, um, Interesting. There's kind of a, 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 a time and a place for everything, I guess. Uh, yeah, some people, I guess it, it's, it's one of those things where I guess, too, it depends. I've heard a lot. It, it depends on the set of mind that you're in while you're on them. 
if you're in a good place, it's a little easier to have a better experience with it than if you're in a depressive state or in like a mood where probably not the best time to decide to do like hallucinogen, you know, cause you know, you have like bad trips or whatever. That's from what I've gathered from people. Well, de- you definitely want to be in a good vibe. Like if you're, no. uh, if you're angry or depressed, you probably don't want to. Like yeah. with anything yeah. else, if you're yeah. in a bad mood, don't do it. Yeah. Yeah, it's very much. You know, we're in a bad place. I mean, the uh, um, folks sneaking off to have their first psychedelic experience in like the back of a parking garage or um, some ridiculous place are naturally going to end up having a, a, t- a terrifying paranoid time. If you're kind of uh, going to do something which is going to affect the the, um, the perceptivity of your whole ner- nervous system, so suddenly you're um, seeing things more vividly, hearing them more vividly, feeling them more vividly. It, it's um, it's going to open up a lot of different possibilities for um, for the good or the bad. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, when you're in that when you're in that uh, that garage and you're tripping out and you look over and the car looks like a face giving you the angry eye, <laughs> and you're scared. You're like, ah, oh, shit. <laughs> Time and a place for sure, for sure. And the time and the place is now. Just I'm joking. all about it. Up a little tab. <laughs> Woo! Yeah. Party time. It, it just brings me back to that story with um, that Mick Strawn had told us about Anthony Perkins. Oh, he, yeah. And he was tripping on acid while they were doing scenes from Psycho. Yeah, or, yeah that was funny. Richard, you must be a fan of Anthony Perkins from Psycho, familiar with them. We, yeah, yeah we a, it's impossible not to be. <laughs> yeah, we had a, we had somebody on that worked Mick Garris, uh, Mick Strawn, who worked on Mick Garris's um, Psycho, the second one, I think, or the third one. And there was a story where they couldn't find uh, Anthony Perkins, and like this, the guy went and found him just standing in a dark room, looking at a wall, <laughs> and he was like all messed up <laughs> on acid. I love that story. That was funny. Yeah, that was like I love I love hearing these like only <laughs> things that happen on set type stories because like, it just gives a lot more meaning to <laughs> the, the the project that you know it's connected to. Um, on hardware, um, John Lynch, who plays Shades, the um, the space jockey, the um, living the next door neighbor in Hardware. Um, because uh, I wanted him to be a character who made a living in um, deep space and who is used to working in zero G. Is, I wanted him to be very fragile. So um, every time before we got John into it uh, for a big scene, I made him go for an hour in an isolation tank where he'd be in complete um, silence and darkness and um, in this natural health center um, isolation tank. So we could then um, get him out of the isolation tank and have things explode in his face. And people get that natural reaction. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Full effect. Who was the actor in hardware who played like he was the chubby guy, like the photographer guy? Um, Yeah, Bill Hootkins. Yeah, I love that character, man. He's so like, he's such like a like a like a, a almost degenerate, like degenerate, like deviant character. He, the shit he says is, I love it, dude. It makes me laugh. It reminded me of like um, 
the deviance that could be found with like Rodney Dangerfield and Natural Born Killers when he played like that like child molester father. Yeah. Hardware yeah, is man. classic. Uh, yeah, a, a super evil character. Yeah. I love it. You're a lot of it like... by Bill, who gave us so many great monologues. Yeah. All of them yeah. blistered the culty. Yeah, you're almost taken back by how like extreme the character is, but then I'm like, oh, I know people in my life like this. Wait a second. <laughs> it's not that extreme. <laughs> <laughs> well, Richard, we had you for like an hour and a half almost. Oh, we, are incre- we are incredibly thankful for you for doing this. You know, this is oh. a pleasure. Very appreciative. Yeah. Yes. That's we, been fun, sir. How can... And people follow you on social media. Do you participate on social media? If so, where can they find you? Oh, um, I, I don't do a lot. I'm kind of on Facebook. But um, beyond that, I'm, I've been keeping a low profile mostly so I can um, yeah, concentrate on um, pretty much on the work. on um, Getting us out another great movie. Doing my thing to um, let the, um, the great old ones have their day. Yeah. I think the great old ones are on Facebook. We'd <laughs> <laughs> love to have you back again sometime. You know, good luck. We're going to be looking forward to the new stuff for sure. It's great. And we're going to be promoting the older stuff, you know, keep it going. I'll so, say. Yeah. You guys take care out there. Thank you. You, you as well. Stay safe. This was a great episode with Richard Stanley. Fantastic. The best guy in the world. Everybody needs to go support him in his films. Absolutely. And we'll catch everybody out there on the next episode of Shock Treatment with Mel and Maddie.